0: Public Square is enormously fortunate to have secured a seasoned and celebrated political observer to shed light on today's topic, big money in politics and the election of 2020. Jeff Greenfield is a five-time Emmy-winning network correspondent. He's been senior political correspondent for CBS, a senior analyst for CNN, a political and media analyst for ABC News and is a contributing uh, correspondent for PBS's NewsHour Weekend. Currently, he's a columnist for Politico and also the Daily Beast, and he also hosts a regular interview series with eminent journalists and writers at the 92nd Street Y in New York. Written or co-author of 14 books, and they've included best-selling novels such as The People's Choice and several alternative histories of American politics then Everything Changed, 43, When Gore Beat Bush, and If Kennedy Lived. I have a feeling that if he writes another alternative history, it will be a straight nonfictional account of contemporary politics. <laughs> please, please join me in welcoming our distinguished guest, Jeff Greenfield.
1: First key thing, am I being heard? Okay. Um, Let me start with a question. How many of you have contributed to political campaigns? Mm -hmm. You realize how utterly untypical you are, right? Because the percentage of Americans who have contributed to campaigns is barely, if it's 1%, that's a lot. It is increasing for reasons I will get to. I just was curious about that. I think to begin, there are two observations about politics that kind of cover the waterfront. In 1895, Mark Hanna, who was an Ohio senator, who was effectively the campaign manager for William McKinley, uh, about which I will speak in a minute for reasons that will become obvious. And uh, Mr. Hanna said, there are two things that are important in politics. The first is money, and I can't remember what the second one is. And 70 years later, right here in this state, Jess Unruh, the legendary speaker of the California Assembly, is the man who was credited with observing that money is the mother's milk of politics. Um, and so with that, with those two texts, texts for the sermon, just let me start by, by making some head notes, uh, some of which may cause you to want to get up and leave, but I want to make clear where we're going on this. Uh, First, there's more money in politics than ever before. The the 2016 campaign, presidential and congressional, uh, topped $6 billion, and there's every reason to think it will go way beyond that next year. Second, it comes from more sources and is deployed in more ways than ever before. Third, technology has had a huge impact on how money is raised and spent for ill and good. Fourth, a great majority of Americans, between 75 and 80%, think big donors have way too much influence in politics, that limits should be placed on how much they can contribute, and that Congress can and should do more to reduce their impact. Fifth, there is no chance in hell that anything like that will happen, (laughs) for reasons that will become clear. And sixth, I'm going to offer two possibly totally contradictory paths that might produce a change in this. Uh, It should be obvious to all of you how critical money is. Uh, If you read the New York Times today, one of the key elements raised about Joe Biden's impending candidacy is, where's he going to get the money from? He doesn't have a donor base. He hasn't run for anything on his own uh, in in years. He's going to have to rely on big money, and that's going to render him vulnerable to attacks from people like Bernie Sanders and Liz Warren, who are eschewing a word I've never used in a sentence before, (laughs) uh, big money. Uh, In addition, you'll notice that the Democratic National Committee, in trying to figure out which of the 65 candidates gets to participate in debates, uses money raising as one of its uh, measures. And indeed, as the quarterly reports were filed, Political reporters paid great attention. Oh, look, Bernie Sanders has twenty-six million. Hey, that guy Buttigieg only announced he's got seven million. What's the problem with Gillibrand? She doesn't. It's all all that money's coming from her Senate. So they're using money as a as a measuring rod for how strong the candidates are. Um, Okay, so with those headnotes, let me offer a little bit of background. Um, The concern over influence of money in politics goes back to before there was an America. Uh, In the 1750s, the Virginia House of Burgesses, later became their state legislature, uh, passed a law banning the spending of any money to provide meat, drink, or entertainment to prospective voters. And the reason they did that was a few years earlier, a candidate for office who had lost two years earlier put on big extravagant dinners and open bars and won his race. That guy, by the way, was George Washington, thought, you know, a certain connection here that if you think this all is new, it isn't. Um, More relevantly, the more America uh, industrialized and the more the government had a huge impact on what these ever larger companies could do, whether it was tariffs, whether it was the gold standard, which would make money either tighter or cheaper, these companies began putting their money into political campaigns with a vengeance. And the man I mentioned, Mark Hanna, when he ran William McKinley's campaign, raised $4 million, which may not sound like much, but it is the equivalent today of $125 million in a time when there's no, where there was, as you probably could figure out, no radio or television. Uh, his opponent, William Jen's, Jennings Bryan, raised barely 1 of that. And I mention this because a little later when Teddy Roosevelt was embarrassed by all the money raised by Republicans for his one election campaign, he offered up uh, a campaign reform bill to ban corporate money and to provide even public uh, public uh, funding of campaigns. That idea went nowhere. No enforcement went anywhere. And for decades, money just was completely unregulated. Um, I recommend to you, uh, if you read Robert Caro's new book, the short one, the one that it keeps him from the damn fifth book on Johnson we're all waiting for. He has an account of how Lyndon Johnson became important as a young congressman because all the Texas money f- was being funneled through him and he would literally on the House floor give out checks, bringing all these congressmen in his den. So what happened? Watergate happened. Uh, most of There are some people in this room old enough to remember actually Watergate, and I realize for some of you it is ancient history. But while the principal memory of Watergate is the break-in and the cover-up and the tapes, just as important was the revelation of just how amazing a flood of money was coming into the Nixon campaign from all corners of the earth. It was literally being flown in on private jets, delivered in briefcases, bundles of cash by people who had interests to protect. And the consequence of that was the passage of the first Honest to God Campaign Finance Reform Act in 1974 which provided for very strict limits on contributions, very strict limits on how candidates could spend the money in primaries, and public financing of the general election and primary campaigns through a, tax, through a check-off on your tax forms. It was $1, then it was $3. And in fact, in 1976 and 1980, the presidential campaigns were funded through public funding. Uh, and it was critical because, for instance, without the infusion of this money, Jimmy Carter's campaign would have died in 1975. He was flat out of money. And had, had, the, had the Federal Election Commission not sent that check in matching funds, and he would have been unable to mount a campaign. Reagan, a year later, was dead broke before the North Carolina primary. Without that infusion of money, he could not have mounted his victory in North Carolina and almost... Uh, Unseated Ford at the convention, so what the, but there were problems, uh, and some of them were legitimate. I mean, if you limit spending by state and you do it by population, the the, the less populous the state, the fewer the less money you can spend. But well, what does that tell you about New Hampshire? Nobody lives there, but it's a really critical primary state, and so candidates uh, in 1976 and '80 were doing things like you know, like spending the night across the border, so would, they, that couldn't that wouldn't be charged to a New Hampshire account. But what really happened, and it's the first in a very long line of such stories, is the Supreme Court stepped in. And those of you who were fixated on Citizens United as the, you know, the cause of all that has gone bad needs to remember that the Supreme Court first uh, struck down congressional laws in 1976 in the case of Buckley versus Vallejo. And basically what they said was, look, uh, you, can, you can limit you know, campaign contributions, but you can't limit the power of an individual to just spend his or her own money on a campaign. And you can't limit how much a candidate can spend on himself or herself because a candidate can't corrupt his or her own self. Uh, and so this, what that in turn did was to produce what came to be known as soft money. So, yes, you could limit campaigns and contributing to campaigns to $1,000 or whatever inflation lets you raise it to. But you could not stop people from giving to um, organizations that would put on their own ads. And so in 1980, the National Conservative Political Action Committee targeted five Democratic senators with virtually the same ad. Um, And I'm not saying it was the reason, reason. They all went down to defeat And this gave rise to an increasing concern of soft money. So the hard money, that goes to candidates themselves. That's limited. That has to be disclosed. But soft money, which can come from whoever, in ways that are not directly raised by the campaign, has virtually become unlimited. This is one of my favorite examples. Okay. So if you look at, say, Mitt Romney's campaign, it was hundred million dollars and more was spent not by the Romney campaign, but by Restore Our Future, a political action committee. What did that mean? It meant that um, Mitt Romney would go to an event and talk about how important it was that he be president. And then he'd leave the room. And then the political action committee people would come in and they'd raise the money. So technically, this money wasn't going to Mitt Romney. Now, the Supreme Court, none of whose members actually know anything about politics, they've all been federal judges, thinks, well, that's fine. You can't corrupt a process that way. They believe in the fiction that because technically that money wasn't given to the campaign, um, it was the free exercise of individual will. Well, in 2002, John McCain and Russ Feingold Try to put some limit on soft money by saying to corporations or unions, uh, you cannot put any message on advocating the election or defeat of a candidate a, a month before a primary or two months before general election. And that's where Citizens United came in. The argument, remember when Mitt Romney was laughed at when he said, you have to remember corporations are people? Well, that's sort of right, legally. Corporations have all kinds of rights. And if you think about it, the New York Times is a corporation. Um, many nonprofit groups are corporations. You know, the Right to Life, National Resources Defense Council, many of these are corporations. So, But what the Supreme Court said in effect was all limits are off as long as you aren't directly coordinating with a campaign. So it meant that because of this tripartite system, now follow me here. What the court said was, well, disclosure is going to take care of everything. As long as we have transparency, as long as you know where the money is coming from, uh, this is fine. So here's what happens. You have a PAC. They're regulated. They give to candidates. You have a super PAC. They can take as much money as they want, but they have to disclose. But then you have these tax-exempt so-called general welfare organizations, which are allowed to spend money on politics as long as it's not their principal activity. A definition that the Federal Election Commission has never actually managed to explain. Carl Rove's Crossroads GPS is a general welfare organization. Now, here's the point. You, they don't have to disclose their donors, and they can take as much money as they want. So here's what happens. People who don't want to... Let you know what they're doing, give money to a general welfare fund. They give the money to the super PAC. The super PAC has to disclose. What do they disclose? Individual contributors? No. They disclose they got the money from Citizens for a Brighter Future. That's what's on their disclosure list. Well, who are they? The disclosure forms won't tell you. And the super PACs then go out and spend whatever they want allegedly uncoordinated with the campaign. Now, I have to tell you, most of the people who run these super PACs are longtime political consultants, former press aides, former campaign chair, former legal counsel of the candidate. Sometimes the candidate shares the same lawyer. So in 2016, when Jeb Bush's uh, political action committee showed up with all this money, who ran it? Mike Murphy, who was Jeb Bush's campaign manager in another campaign. And that's the legal fiction uh, that permits this kind of um, political campaigning. So here's what Justice Kennedy said about all this. When the de- he was the deciding vote in the five to four Citizens United um, decision. And he said, about, he said about, corpor- about corruption, he said, the appearance, the appearance of influencer access will not cause the electorate to lose faith in our democracy. By definition, an independent expenditure is political speech presented to the electorate that is not coordinated with a candidate. The fact that a corporation or any other speaker is willing to spend the money to try to persuade voters presupposes that the people have the ultimate influence over elected officials. Now. Part of this reminds me of the famous Anatole France comment that the law in its majestic equality forbids rich and poor alike from begging or sleeping under bridges. But the more more important point is when Sheldon Adelson gave tens of millions of dollars to Newt Gingrich, Newt Gingrich inasmuch said, you know, I am with Sheldon Adelson on his policy of Israel, when and similarly speaking, when you know, America, when Americans for Progress or or a, a liberal political super PAC raises tons of money to try to defeat, um, say, a candidate who voted against same-sex marriage, the idea that there's no coordination is as it's just absurd. The problem is that constitutionally, it's not that easy to 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 separate that kind of activity that you think is legitimately prescribable or that which, in fact, undercuts individuals' right to participate in the campaign. Um, So that's what the law now says. And I need to say this. Um, Last month, the Democratic-controlled House passed H.R. 1, a massive campaign reform bill. It includes public financing of campaigns. Uh, It includes uh, forcing disclosure on these general welfare agencies. Uh, It proposes a constitutional amendment to reverse Citizens United, and it passed the House. And it will have as much impact as a vote we would take here on what to do on campaign finance reform, it's not just that the Senate is controlled by Republicans, but their leader, Mitch McConnell, is the biggest opponent of campaign finance reform on First Amendment grounds. That bill is not even going to be taken up by the Senate, much, much less defeated. There's another point about this, though, uh, that begins to suggest a different kind of campaign financing Um, and that is what's happened with social media. Now, I want to begin with the bad news. If campaign money is relatively unregulated when it comes to things like television advertising, when you turn to things like Facebook, it's night and day. Nobody knows where these ads are coming from. No, nobody knows where the messages are coming from. And mm-hmm. the fact that last time out, Cambridge Analytica was able to vacuum up massive amounts of data and through its algorithm figure out exactly who to target with exactly what messages without a clue of how this was happening puts a whole new dimension into this issue. Because at the least... As a journalist, I mean, journalists used to and still do. Sometimes will go to a primary state and sit in a hotel room for two days and just watch the political ads. At this point, they're all online, but you at least see what's being addressed, who's you know who who is speaking, person on TV, and what their message is. With Social media, you can target these messages in a way that no political consultant would have dreamt possible. You know, I don't want to tell you the same thing I want to tell you because you may have different issues. You may not want to hear what I have to say to you. So the way that social media works and the way the algorithms work, I know exactly based on the data. I've, it's not that I know you by name and number, but I have a very good idea of how you think based on all the preferences I can figure out. So this message will be to you, but this message will be to you. Maybe it's gun rights. Maybe it's abortion. Maybe it's tax reform. Maybe it's foreign policy. And also, by the way, maybe these, these messages are flat-out lies. Uh, even in this unregulated age, by the way, a, a television station will reject an ad that is offered if, they, if somebody says, you know what, this is flatly wrong. It's it's just a lie. You know, I was not convicted of child abuse in 1995, and the ad won't run. When it comes to social media, right? You know, and now Facebook is now facing a whole lot of questions about just how this happened, and they vow, you know, to try to make their platform a little less amenable to such. But it has made a huge difference in, in, in the limits or the limitlessness of, of of. flatly false information. So what's the good news? The good news is that social media has done what reformers could not have dreamed of either, which is they have finally made it possible for huge sums of money to be raised in small amounts and empowered the small donor. Uh, We first noticed this uh, in 2000, after John McCain won the New Hampshire primary. Big shock. His campaign, which was running on Empty. Suddenly, got an infusion of a few million dollars, and it turned out that on the internet, it's it's a it's a campaign dream. Why? Because the transactional costs are non-existent. You don't have to mail out five million. You get them in your mailbox. Still, I know you know appeals for money, and and, if, and a three percent return is considered great. There is no transaction cost. You get the money via credit card. It is instantly available to you. And because these donors are generally small amount donors, let's say they send you 25 bucks, what they will do is they'll commit to spend 25 bucks every month. And that's how Bernie Sanders in 2016, to the shock of the entire political establishment, was able to pretty much compete dollar for dollar with Hillary Clinton. And why today, uh, when you count what's left over from his Senate bank account. Bernie Sanders has some $26 million uh, available. And 90, I think something like 95% of it is coming from small donors, which means that that's a weapon that he can reload again, again, and again. And here is where um, a kind of optimistic view emerges. I mean, think about this. I mentioned John McCain, right? Four years later, Howard Dean this basically unknown governor of Vermont, but whose campaign was steeped in knowledge of the internet, suddenly emerged at this massive, for the time, uh, fundraiser. Outraised everybody else in the campaign and, uh, and was presumed to be the presumptive favorite until he actually started campaigning and, and people realized why they didn't like doctors. Uh, and he, I mean, even before the scream in Iowa, he was finished. But the point is, look what he showed. And then four years later, And I want those of you of the Democratic persuasion to make sure you remember this. By 2004, candidates were already abandoning public financing in the primary. It just was too many. But they all accepted public financing in the general election. Barack Obama, his campaign with a whole new generation of expertise in social media, found itself raising so much money that he became the first candidate of either party to reject public financing in the general election. Now they all do it. But he was the first. Why? Because he could. (laughs) He was not about to say, no, no, I I could raise five times the money you'll give me. But I I think I'll play by. I think I don't think I want to do that. Uh, I hope it doesn't shock you. This is, by the way, another point I need to make. Uh, the Democrats, more than the Republicans, love to talk about f- campaign finance reform, right? But, you know, Clinton was president with a Democratic Congress for two years, and somehow that's, that didn't make the agenda. Um, and Obama was president with a Democratic Congress for two years, and somehow that didn't make the agenda. So when you hear people talk about public, you know, how much they want to limit money, one of the questions is, well, what did you do with the power that you had? Um, So where are we now? Well, I mentioned social media. This is where I mean this kind of an opposite direction. So one thing I think is important is the growth of small donor contributions. Uh, And I think this is going to be uh, an ever-increasing fact of life. But there's another thing I want to mention. In 2018, one of the more successful players was Michael Bloomberg, three time mayor of New York. Now, Mr. Bloomberg does not hesitate to use his funds in pursuit of his political objectives. Uh, in the three terms, the three elections in which he was elected mayor of New York, he spent a total of um, slightly more than $250 million. That was for New York City. It's a big city, but that's a lot of money. What he did in 2018 was to use his money like a like a rifle. He raised some and spent some uh, $112 million. But one of the things he did was to was to look at races that the Democratic National, it's the DCCC, Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, had said, we don't think we can put, put any money in these races. And because Rollenberg had enough money to do pretty much whatever he wanted. He had an operation that looked at these races and said, you know, we think we can take this race if we put some money into it. So he spent, f- he spent just on House candidates, he spent $44 million on TV ads and another $12 million on digital ads. And because he had this money, he was able to do what, what very few campaigns were willing to do. He was willing to test the ads. Most times people say, "Look, we got an election in November. We don't have time for this nonsense. Bloomberg's had fun. He put ads on digital TV, and the ads that did the best, he moved to, to uh, television. And I think it was 20. I think something like 21 of the 24 House candidates he um, backed won. Some of whom were given very little chance at all. So what I'm getting at here is that, well, I think for most people they see big money as the as the tool of the right. The Koch brothers, Sheldon Adelson, whoever. Well, there's also Tom Steyer, and there's Michael Bloomberg, and there, you know, there's a kind of mutually ast- assured destruction here, which gets me to I think the the um, the last point I want to make before I open it up. So, some I guess it was about nine years ago, Ralph Nader of all people, wrote a novel. I don't recommend it for its literary. Um, charm. But the novel was called Only the Super Rich Can Save Us. And his the, the conceit of the novel was that uh, Warren Buffett and Ted Turner, and I can't remember who the others were, get together and say, we've had enough. And they pour their resources into a series of campaigns that just overwhelms the opposition, using massive money to elect the reformers who then reformed the political process. And it did occur to me and I, you know, I'm tempted at some time to ask him. So Michael Bloomberg has a net worth of 45 billion dollars. It's probably gone up about half a million since we I started or half a billion since I started this talk. And, you know, I mean and you sort of wonder He's not going to run for president. He made a decision probably probably wise one that, you know, this is not the year for a billionaire who doesn't think Wall Street's the villain and, you know, all of that. It's not, I can, he said, I can win the election. I don't think I can win the primary. So he's got 45 billion dollars and he's, you know, in his seventies and he probably doesn't need all that money, you know, for his comfort. He took 10% of that money. Let's round it off a little, $5 billion. And just said to Mitch McConnell and the Republicans, So you think money is speech? Well, listen to this. So the, the two, now I don't think the Ralph Nader novel is realistic, but I do think it is, you can see the beginning efforts on the part of the left to say, We, have, we are going to get into this thing, we are going to get into it at least as much as the right. Um, and, in fact, even some of the the, uh, Democratic candidates, a favorite line about this, by the way, Elizabeth Warren used it, was, I I don't favor unilateral disarmament. As long as this is the game, we're going to play it. But my feeling is that two possible ways to um, see some way out of where we are now is, first, the small donor um, potential explosion. Second, and I should mention this, in many states and cities, there is a form of public financing. The Supreme Court has said you, you have to be careful about how you do this, because if you do it in a way that limits the rich people, that might be a violation of their First Amendment rights. But New York City, Seattle, I think Denver um, has versions of public financing. But I think the other thing is I, I just wonder if at some point um, the richest, and Bloomberg is in a class totally by himself, or let's throw in Bill Gates, and let's throw in Jeff Sucker. Just take the three of them and imagine them simply overwhelming the political process in a way that says to previous um, skeptics, you know what? This has really gotten out of hand. We have got to do something about this. Um, So that's, I think, where we are. Um, There is no dramatic end to this talk. Um, I used to be a speechwriter. We were supposed to do that, but I got tired of it. So when I finish my speech, I and I say, well, okay, that's it. What do you think?
2: (laughs) If you were in charge of the world Ah. and could enact the legislation that would solve this problem or at least make substantial progress, what would it look like?
1: First, if I were in charge of the world, I'd put high-speed rail uh, all over California. I just took (laughs) took took a train back from San Diego, and it's a lot better than driving, but it's a bit slow. But here's the problem. Well, the only way to fix it now would be to change the composition of the Supreme Court. So you're assuming a world ruler would not have that problem, right? He would simply, or she, would simply decree it. But in this world, even if I were someone endowed with, with, with say, the power of the president, um, it's really critical to understand that the Citizens United and its predecessors are based on First Amendment theory, and you cannot override a Supreme Court decision based on constitutional theory with a law. It doesn't work. That's why it was at least honest, if insanely unrealistic, for the Democrats to put in their bill that they are going to introduce a constitutional amendment to overturn Citizens United. Now the other way to do this is to change the composition of the Supreme Court. Which is why some of the candidates for president <laughs> are proposing that if a Democrat wins and the Democrats take the Senate, they will, which they would, and the law would permit them, add more justices to the Supreme Court. Presumably, justices who would vote to overturn uh, Citizens United, because the court has the power to say we were wrong. Um, now, if I were the constitutionally okay ruler of the world would I do that no I think because I think institutionally you start mucking around with this stuff for temporary political advantage and you wind up without a stable republic so that's so my answer is um, do the latter if I were ruler of the world I would would summon Zucker Bloomberg Gates I'm I'm sure I'm forgetting somebody Okay. Yeah, of course. Uh, and say, fellas, um, here's what we're gonna do. <laughs> I need two and a half billion bucks from each of you, and we're gonna run a campaign to elect people who, on the sole issue of campaign finance reform, I don't care what else they believe, but they gotta commit to that. So when this is when this becomes plausible, would you call me? <laughs> that I could be ruler of the world and do this. I mean, over here. Yeah. Wait for the mic.
3: Um, full disclosure,
0: I have worked for a super PAC. Um, which one? A Planned Parenthood Action Fund. And it seems as though, uh, you know, a lot of your solutions, which seem uh, most reasonable, come from the outside in. And I'm just wondering if you can speak a little bit to the role of the IRS in regulating the C4s, which to my understanding has been completely gutted in terms of their ability to. In- force anything as far as the principal activity that these C4s undertake? Right. Um, and is there any hope in a budget that would fund okay. the IRS
1: to do that? That's a really good point. The f- 501 C4s are what I call, less precisely, these general welfare organizations. And it's up to the IRS to determine whether they're authentic. Now, do any of you remember what happened a few years ago when the IRS actually began looking into this? The Republicans, Went the the polite way to put it is ballistic. There's another description that I will not indulge in, saying that this was an attempt to um, target conservative groups, and they wanted Lois Lerner to be impeached. It turned out their their charges was not substantially correct, but the but the IRS got really wounded on this. And you can also understand how there's a there's a modicum of legitimacy to the argument of saying, do you want the IRS to decide, you know, who can give money, who who is covered by, who is permitted under our 501c4 and who is not? The the Democratic bill HR1 they have a they have a um, cute name for it. It's, I don't remember. Do you ever know what it is? Freedom to vote. It's some anodyne good guy thing. One of their one of their argu- one of the, one of their proposals is to greatly restrict, through legislation, um, who can contribute to these groups without um, disclosing who they are. So I think the IRS is a lost cause. Uh, as long, and I'm not trying to be partisan here, but the Republicans in Congress do not like the IRS. Um, they, they, they have cut the auditing budgets. Um, years ago, they brought out a bunch of small businessmen who claimed to have been uh, harassed by the IRS. It turns out they were, frankly, almost all of them tax cheats, which is why the IRS was going after them. Um, but you, So this, the solution, if that's what it is, is going to come only if you have a Congress willing uh, to take action, right? And I should also mention the Federal Election Commission is completely useless. Because it's three Republicans and three Democrats, and they always tie, which means they do nothing. Whether they're trying to investigate illegal campaign activities, they they simply, it's almost like a, uh, I don't know, I'm trying to think, it's like a Joseph, it's like a a chapter out of Catch-22. They exist, and they can do nothing. Uh, And it's been proposed, among other things, that that commission be changed into an odd-numbered, Commission, so essentially decisions can be made. But right now, I see no administrative answer at all. Uh, Yeah, I'll come to this side if anybody has a question. But go ahead. It seems
4: this corner. Um, From listening to you and much that I've read, um, getting the political system to modify its own system is going to be very difficult, if not impossible. But is there another approach which is what many other countries do, which is to shorten the process, leave out all of the issues about money and who's doing this to what, but to create a a, a political desire from the public to shorten these processes because we're in the midst of a ongoing, never-ending
1: election <laughs> cycle. Well, let's okay. Let think about this for a minute, okay? So, yeah, everybody talks about you know the British system where they, they, they announce an election that runs for six weeks. Among other things, you can spend almost no money if you're a, a, a candidate for the House of Commons. Britain doesn't have a First Amendment. They can do a lot of things, some good, some bad, that in this country you couldn't ever do. They also have Official Secrets Act. They can, they can, you know, they can censor newspapers and forbid them from publishing things. But the problem here is when you, is when you look at our system, How do you stop, I'm just giving you, how do you stop Cory Booker, two weeks after Trump's inauguration, from going to Iowa and New Hampshire? How do you stop the fact that the minute, I mean, it's almost like the Oklahoma land rush, you know, it began with, I think, a gunshot, right? The minute the midterms are over, that's two years before the next presidential election, candidates begin, creating exploratory committees and you know I, I, look I've covered politics all my uh, adult life and worked in it before and I am fed up <laughs> I am exhausted I can't do this for the next year and a half I, I don't know what I'm going to do take up you know fly fishing something <laughs> I can't do it but there is there isn't any way you I, I actually proposed tongue-in-cheek that no, no no prospective candidate or journalist should be permitted in Iowa or New Hampshire until the calendar year of the presidential election <laughs> now i believe there are constitutional problems with this idea <laughs> but the, i share it but it is no the you know the the there is no way to do it because the problem isn't the length of the elections it is the pre-election period when, when, you know, it's March of 1990, and I'll show you how bad it got. So, about two months ago, my wife and I were gonna go somewhere, and I said, wait a minute, March 2nd? That's the primary here in California. And she kindly said to me, that's next year. <laughs> but, I, you know, the coverage of these campaigns, I'm going off on a rant here, but what the hell. The, co- the coverage of these campaigns Drives me nuts because it is it is turbocharged, you know. The idea that you know who's winning now. Sanders stumbles, uh, uh, you know. Look, Buttigieg on the rise, and nobody looks at the history. You know, look at who look at who were the pronounced favorites the year before. Nate Silver says no these these polls are predictive. I, my anecdotal memory is, you know, Howard Dean, Rudy Giuliani, John McCain is dead. Uh, 1980, the day after the Iowa caucuses, Ronald Reagan is politically dead. That's a quote. There's an an inability of my business, or whatever it is, to to practice restraint. The the, the number of reporters who are now out in the field is insane. One last point. So in, in 1988, when Al Gore briefly was running for president, he dropped out early. I went up to New Hampshire, maybe four or five weeks before the primary. And he was a, a serious candidate. He wasn't a favorite. And I, I covered him with my camera crew in a living room. And there were like 30 people there and maybe three reporters. Today or well, tomorrow, you watch in, when Joe Biden announces, you count the number of reporters there. Or more, more to the point, watch when Beto O'Rourke or Pete Buttigieg or Christine Gillibrand or any one of these now 20 candidates goes, The I don't know, I don't know where they even come from. I can't figure out who they report for. <laughs> there aren't that, but there are that many outfits with the growth of the web. This is a long rant to say I think I, I think it's something you have to live through. There's no, the only way this could change again is if someday some candidate, some really respected person in like March of the election year says, you know, I think I'm going to run for president. I'm just not satisfied with what I've seen, and the country embraces that person, and maybe. Maybe that puts us stop to it. I'm not optimistic about that.
5: I, I actually just have a comment. It's really not just in the presidential election. It's every election that the amount of money that needs to be raised is greater and greater and greater. If you just want to run, my cousin's running for city council in Los Angeles right now. I mean, I'm hoping he has millions in his bank because he's for city council. You know, so I, I think this isn't just a problem at the presidential level, it goes all the way down the ropes in politics. I remember my son is now 29, and he said a long time ago, I want to get in politics. But first I have to be really successful at business and become a gazillionaire because the only people that are successful in politics are wealthy.
1: You're quite, By the way, you're quite right about the ubiquity of it. Um, Some years ago, Jane Mayer's book, Dark Money, is really good about this. Uh, it turns out a lot of people realized that uh, money spent at the, like a state legislative race, can turn that state legislature. That's what happened in North Carolina. And so suddenly you get a state legislature that is completely the reverse of what it was. And because you've picked off two or three seats, and on a state level it's less. uh, Don Blankenship, the owner of the mine company in West Virginia, spent millions of dollars to elect a state Supreme Court justice who, when that justice got on the bench, overturned a $50 million judgment against Don Blankenship. And a lot of the worst stuff does happen at at, at the level. I mean, what Beto work raised for the Texas Senate race? I think it was $80 million, Mm -hmm. something like that. Sir?
4: Thank you very much. Uh, I want to return to your optimism, or at least sense of positive uh, reflection about social media and the uh, nature of small donations. So really, this is a request for you to drill down a little bit on that, because while one could say that obviously having more opportunities for small donations means that certain candidates, as you had rightfully pointed out, have an opportunity to be in the, in the ring, so to speak. So there is that benefit. Uh, there also seems to be a benefit naturally in terms of just the basic uh, right and engagement of citizens to be able to be engaged with whoever they want to be. So those are two very clear benefits. But one could say that actually, it's really just going to contribute more to the amount of money that's going into the pot, so to speak. Oh. Uh, and that, therefore, the 1% that you rightfully pointed out at the beginning of the meeting, which may be increased to 1.5% or to 3%. So I'd like to have you comment on really what you see as the benefit of those small donations. Thank you.
1: One thing I should mention is that, that every time this re- issue comes up, George Will writes a column saying, you know, we spend more in this country on, and then it's always pet food, chewing gum. But, but it is legitimate, uh, I think it's a really important distinction between how much money is spent and where it comes from. I think, I think you know, if, I think the fact that a relatively small handful of people could dominate mm-hmm. campaign financing is the, is the core of the problem. And by the way, I should also mention money in politics a real discussion of this would also include lobbying, which in some ways is more baleful because an election happens and then it's over. But the lobbyists are there forever. So I, I, do, I am an optimist about that. I, I, I think that's okay if more money comes into politics, if it's from many streams. Mm-hmm. Yeah, on that question... Uh, hold it one second.
2: And I'm uh, touched by it. it's somewhat macabre, actually, talking about better elections at a time when one branch of government is declaring that the other branch of government has no authority. It's, it's a very odd political situation we find ourselves in. And the word constitutional crisis, I don't know if sure does merit to it. But, but what might change that, and, and I want you to go to what you said a moment ago, the number of small donors is, I think, an indication of the people who are willing to participate in the process. So it's not just the money they raise. What it's telling me, so when I see Elizabeth Warren and, and uh, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, and, and Mayor Pete, up there with these tremendous numbers, and then I at how many people that represents. Yeah. That's what I see as powerful. And my question is this, do you think people who donate like that, if they get discouraged, their, their candidate doesn't come through, uh, and they end up with another, forgive me, old white guy that gets nominated, and I don't think they will, but let's say they did. Will those people go away, or do you think this is some kind of, some kind of a new mm. lift in politics which we haven't seen, which is outside the Democratic the Republican parties?
1: You know, first of all, there are a great number of people who stayed in for an old white guy named Bernie Sanders. Yes. Um, but more to the point, one of the things that happened with the Obama campaign, and they did this really quite brilliantly, was that they turned the donors into uh, participants. Mm-hmm. Once you gave like 5 or 10 bucks to the Obama campaign, you were on their list. You were informed of meetings. You were asked to, to organize affinity groups. You were asked to contact other people. Um, and they turn the, the campaign finance structure into a campaign involvement structure. Now, that's unusual, but it shows you that it could happen. And I want to keep you short, I'm keeping you short.
3: <laughs> Again, along these lines, um, it seems like one of the most uh, optimistic parts of that, about having more people uh, contributing, is maybe a, a, a change in public morals and sort of the, sort of the social pressure against that dark money, that secret money. So when you, if you're taking billions of dollars from who knows where, there could be a, a turning against that kind of thing. And I don't know if there's a way to boost that kind of shift in how people think about politics and suspicion well, of where it comes from.
1: If you go by the polls, that feeling's already there. The problem is. The problem is, how do, you, how do you shame people whose identity you don't know?
3: <laughs>
1: no. Yeah, no, I, I mean, that's a question. But
3: you shame the people who accept that money and, uh, and don't vote for them because they're okay. accepting that. And I think you know, Elizabeth Warren, is one, that's one okay. of her tactics. So how
1: many votes do you think Barack Obama lost from political reformers when they learned he was abandoning public finance? Do you think people said, well, I really want Obama to be president, but I just don't like the fact he's taking all that money. I suspect the number is small. When you like a candidate, you tend to find good things to say about that candidate across the board. So um, Watergate was the one example where there was this shock to the system because the money came into a campaign that then turned into a campaign that had done the break-in. I don't know what the standards are now for judging campaigns. We, we live, you know, Leonard alluded to this, and I was asked to write, should I write an alternate history about this last campaign? I said, this is it. This is it. This is, this is, this is it. So I'm, I'm a little dubious about that possibility. Um, we've got a candidate here.
4: I was hoping you could speak to this effort to um, to change the winner-take-all rules in the Electoral College and uh, its impact, if any, on the role of money in politics.
1: I wrote a novel about the Electoral College, 22, 20, my god, 24 years ago, where it goes, it goes bluey. Uh, and Hollywood bought it and said it was too weird to make. And then after the 2000 election, they said it wasn't weird enough. <laughs> I I want to keep this concise. I think think the issue is more complicated than just let's abolish it and have a national popular vote, and there are two reasons. One is, suppose you had a popular vote like 1960 when John Kennedy won by one-tenth of one percent, maybe, depending on how you count the votes in Alabama, which were split between electors, depending on whether you think there was a lot of hanky-panky in Illinois and Texas. You realize, remember what we went through in 2000 with Florida? Well, you have a really close election and you're going, to have a, you're going to have 50 Floridas because every vote is going to matter. That's one. The reason the electoral college has some advantages, it provides a kind of ballast to the process. The second thing is, come on, knock it off. Why do we want to elect a president who loses the popular vote? George W. Bush made a very good point about this. He lost by one half of 1%. He said, you know, if we had a popular vote, I'd run a whole different campaign. I'd go to upstate New York, you know, in, in the suburbs. Um, Al Gore would have gone to Texas, try to gin up the vote in, in Dallas and in Democratic areas. With Trump, it's trickier because the vote margin was so great. But just mention this. Hillary Clinton won by 3 million popular votes. California went for Clinton Clinton by 4 million votes. So in one sense, one of the founding fathers' concerns was that large states would overwhelm small states. So there's kind of an argument to say, so 49 states (coughs) and the other 49 states, Trump won. I don't think that's, by the way, overwhelmingly persuasive the last thing i'll mention i don't want to take too much time i don't i don't want to take too much time but the one solution to this that is now ongoing and will also probably not work is this 270 effort and the premise is get enough states to to agree enough states with 270 electoral votes that whatever their state does their electoral votes will go to the winner of the national popular vote because state legislatures can do this. They have total power over the electoral votes. They don't even have to let us vote. They could, they could decide on their own who gets So you understand what that premise is? It only goes into effect if enough states to form an electoral majority all agree to push their electoral votes to the national popular. So let me ask you this question. So it's 2020. And Donald Trump has won the popular vote by like a disputed majority, right? What do you think the voters of California would think if the state legislature says, "By the way, we're giving all our votes to Donald Trump"? You think there might be you think there might be political fallout from this?
5: <laughs>
1: now you know, but it, it actually is the the one possible thing because this whole idea of abolishing the electoral college another one of those constitutional amendment ideas that law professors will tell you about it, that just you know it's not possible I mean it's not plausible it's, is it possible? I, look I could be a Wimbledon quarter finalist I guess technically in July it's not going to happen um, so that's last. the only states that have signed on to this by the way are blue states so I ain't enough of them to um, to make it work All right, we're not going to force this. Uh,
0: Are there additional questions? Rob, please okay, use the mic.
1: Here, t- take take the mic.
0: <laughs> going back to your optimistic comments, can you drill down a little bit
1: more about this uh, gentleman called McConnell who is... is uh, sitting in the way of everything going through the Senate? Yeah, Mitch McConnell has been, in many ways, the most effective majority leader of the Senate since Lyndon Johnson, if you are measuring simply by the results he wanted. McConnell, more than anybody else, has been the person saying any attempt at campaign finance reform that limits donations is a violation of the First Amendment. Uh, He was on this case. He was uh, passionately opposed to McCain-Feingold. and will have no truck with any attempt to, to limit it. Uh, I don't know how much of this is cynical. I don't know how much. I mean, the, his biog- the one biography of Mitch McConnell is, the title of the book is called The Cynic. But I don't know how much of it is an authentic belief. Of, you know, and there are, folks who really believe that this is a First Amendment issue. The, the Citizens United. One of the amicus briefs, if I'm not mistaken, I know this was true in Buckley, was filed by the American Civil Liberties Union. Um, and the other plaintiff in Buckley was Gene McCarthy, the former senator. So it's a mix of, of legitimate constitutional issues and I think some very cynical political calculations about how this process works. Um, you know.
0: Can you say anything about all this money being generated and made and whether it's PR agencies or advertising agencies and the implications for that, just these business opportunities and their interests in maintaining the status quo maybe?
1: Yeah, um, very much so. The politi- I think the, the legion of political consultants... Um, who sign on the campaigns into political action committees uh, is, is a vested interest group, to be sure. And, in fact, um, there are fa- there are an Im- impressive number of political scientists who will tell you that, with some exceptions, political advertising just doesn't matter, particularly not in a presidential campaign where there's so much other information. Um, And there have been furious fights when um, uh, newcomers suggest that the ad budgets be drastically cut and turned into the kind of thing that the Obama campaign and now other campaigns do. Um, Get out the vote operations, because it's been shown that the most direct way, the most influential way a vote can be changed is this way. Political consultants don't don't like that, um, because they're there's, you know, their futures and uh, depend, depend on spending great sums of money. And I think the other thing is everybody's afraid not to advertise. One of the people who showed that this was a little different was Donald Trump, you know, who spent Hillary Clinton's campaign, outspent the Trump campaign two to one by hundreds of billions of dollars. Uh, he had, on the other hand, he had what somebody calculated as about $5 billion in, in free media, you know, particularly at the beginning. <laughs> So you're right. But the problem is that um, there's two quick observations. One, I think it's a line attributed to Napoleon, that half of all military spending is wasted. It's just we don't know which half. (laughs) And the other is the story about a guy in an old Western town gambling at a roulette table. And his friend says, you know that roulette wheel is crooked. He says, yeah, but it's the only game in town. (laughs) So I just think there's a mortal fear that we're not gonna be the first to back off. I think, by the way, a candidate who pledged no ads, you know, maybe do one ad and say, this is the only ad for me you will see this campaign because you're sick of them. (laughs) So here's my website. Uh, We'll have people coming in your neighborhood, but that's it, I'm done. I mean, you know, I live in California now, and boy, the last weeks of a campaign, I would, isn't the other possibility that after the 50th ad, none of them work? Just because you can't remember who the hell is saying what. So.
5: I want to go back to your idea about bringing together the super rich to make a positive impact on what's happening in our society. And I would ask you, one, what momentum would it take to bring such a committee together into two. How would they focus their attention? That really would make a difference.
1: I'm not sure I know the answer to the second question. I think you're beginning to see, uh, um, you're beginning to see some evidence of this, and it's not, uh, you know. I guess I would. I'm waiting to see whether or not Bezos and company come into this, and you know, he's got his own problem because Trump has made him such an enemy. That I'm not sure he wants to put his company uh, in some in the more in the crosshairs than it is now. Um, but I, I do think this is the, the, the ultimate example. of This is probably still more in the realm of fantasy. The question is whether a guy like Bloomberg um, has other Could say to allies, "Look, this is what I'm doing. You ought to be doing this too," because um, you know he's somebody that. People listen to Um, whether that'll happen. uh, I don't know. I also don't know what. um, One of the things that we're seeing is that many of the big Republican donors, who were completely opposed to Trump in 16, are now coming on board for his reelection. In part because they're petrified by Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and 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 the Democratic, you know, some of those Democrats. So. My guess is whatever was spent in 2016 is just going to be dwarfed by what we see next year. And so maybe these guys will decide. What I guess is really hard to imagine is everybody coming together on the one issue of campaign finance reform. It's too diffuse. You know, I mean, I'm for campaign finance reform, but I'm pro life. I'm for campaign. I'm pro that? How does that congeal? And I don't know.
0: I was wondering if you could comment on the incumbent effect, and if you think it's changed, or how its power has decreased or increased? Uh, I, I'm sorry? On what? The incumbent effect?
1: Yeah, most incumbents get re-elected. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's, uh, that's a fact. Um, it's not a prediction, but it, it has all kinds of advantages. The one I just mentioned, one of the reasons why these Republican never-Trumpers are now on board is a, they're petrified of the other guy, and B, you know, he's delivered tax cuts, a conservative federal bench, a regulatory structure that is, you know, totally pro-business. Um, his chief of staff has. Did you see the New York Times Magazine story Sunday about the Consumer Financial Protection Board? It's a little example. That was a that was a hell-for-leather outfit created by Elizabeth Warren that was going after predatory you know, anti-consumer behavior. So, this is a transactional notion. You know, they still may think Trump is like a sociopath, but he's their sociopath. (laughs) (laughs) And I have to say, you know, I ask people this. So, suppose there was a candidate that you regarded, I'm talking at this point, people on the left, Mm -hmm. a complete, a moral leper, let's say, who will deliver you a pro-choice Supreme Court, a progressive taxation, a committed environmental uh, approach, a completely, you know, inter- rebuild our international relations? Yeah. So, how awful does she have to be before you say, "No, I'm not going to vote for her. I'm going to vote for the guy who's going to keep you know, everything I hate about policy." This is tricky stuff. You know, it really is. Um, an incumbency, yeah. You'd rather be the incumbent than not in most elections.
5: Thank you. Um, when I first came to this country, I was horrified at the election process, and it's got worse and worse and worse. And that's a long time ago. And so I would have thought um, that it was the the money and the politics that screws everything up and has changed everything. But in Europe now, we're having the same sort of problems, and we don't have this kind of election, and we don't allow the money in it. But we're getting the same bad candidates and the same bizarre results. So I just wondered what you thought. Right.
1: Yeah, I was. I'm. I'm sort of. Um, I was. have regularly been lectured by folks from across the pond about our system, and I'm. Temp- you know. I'm tempted at this point, if it happens in, to say, well, okay, Brexit, the yellow vests, Victor <laughs> Orban. You know, they just elected a comedian in Ukraine who plays the president. He's now going to be the president. Yeah. I mean, what you're talking about fundamentally and, and less humorously is a, a kind of a, a, a worldwide outbreak of what, for one of a better word, we're calling populism. And it probably stems from a common belief, partly legitimate, that the interests of kind of regular people, less powerful people have been really um, trampled over. Um, and that's a, you know, that's a an accelerant to, to some other ugly stuff. You have the mic already, so go ahead.
5: I have a comment. Um, if you haven't seen a movie documentary uh, Steve Bannon made called The Brink, you might want to look at that. Mm-hmm. Um, he uh, is now going to Europe quite everywhere, uh, getting the populist vote together. Um, he was very much involved in the last midterm elections, but yeah. he wasn't successful. Right. And now he said, okay, I, I didn't win here. He's now spending most of his time in New York getting the populist vote going. It's an interesting movie. I suggest you see it.
1: Yeah, it was, I mean, I think the only thing I can say from some knowledge about is his, his notion about what he was going to be able to accomplish in the United States didn't quite happen, uh, not just in, in the General elections, but his notion he was going to primary all these uh, guys who were standing in the way of Trump. Um, He's a character. (laughs) And I don't know what his impact's going to be over there. I just don't know. Um.
0: Would some of the students like to offer their thoughts? Oh, go, please. I'm not sure what the correlation has been between which candidate raises the most money and which one wins if the correlation were to weaken i would think the money might start to disappear
1: you've raised a question that that many people have tried to answer and here's the here's the tricky part i just saw a piece on this and you know at one point i might have been able to remember where but that was many years ago and here's what we know most often the candidate with the most money wins most often what we don't know is whether he wins or she wins because of the money, or whether the money goes to that person because people think they're going to win. Which, you know, you're an incumbent, you're the chair of the House uh, Special Privileges Committee, you're going to get tons of money, um, you know, in your direction from the. But also, in most elections, somewhere around 90 percent of House incumbents get reelected. So we don't know. Um, we can certainly point to examples where candidates were outspent and won. Um, I remember, I'll give you a couple of exa- quick examples. In 1996, Senator Phil Graham of Texas announced the president with a then enormous bankroll and said, I got whatever candidate most needs ready money. And by Iowa, he was invisible. Uh, Dean had more money and didn't work out. It's not a, it's not one to one. It's a correlation, but it's but we don't know if it's causation. Um, it's most effective in lesser races where people are relatively unknown, because what the money does is buy you you know recognition. That's where it really counts. Yeah,
5: I've read in a couple places that the economy is one of the biggest factors in a president's reelection. Um, I, my economics professor told me that there's a recession coming at some point. I'm hoping that's not true um, but if there is one by the end of 2019 or early 2020, do you think that'll have an effect on Trump
1: oh, yeah. election yeah. That's the one thing first of all that's the one thing that can turn incumbency into a liability so mm-hmm. yes he can fail even I mean what the weirdest one was George H. w. Bush the recession had ended the, uh, in 1991 but he lost in great measure because people didn't think the recession had ended. Um, sure. Uh, one, of the thing, one of the things about Trump that uh, people, smart people like Nate Silver of 538.com note is his, his approval rating is, even though it's ticked up a little bit, I mean, first of all, it's almost like an EEG flatline. It moves very little in the last two years. The range of, tr- of Trump's approval rating, when you average out all the polls, which is the only way to do it, pardon me for a brief enough, don't pick up a paper and read a poll that says Trump is up and down and go, oh, wow, that's it. Aggregate, because there are outlier polls. Anyway, one of the things that's weird about Trump's approval rating, which is like 41, is given the economy, it should be way higher. So in one sense, if the economy doesn't go into a recession, this is going to come down to a case between the economy and people still overwhelmingly feeling that this guy doesn't belong there because he's just not, <laughs> he's not a president. He doesn't behave like, you know, we think he should. A recession, yeah, that's bad news. Remember the sign in Bill Clinton's war room? Was the economy stupid? And, there, and as I say, it wasn't even a recession. But yeah, ask Jimmy Carter about inflation, ask Bush, it's... It's always a key, yeah.
0: One of the things I have thought a lot about as I've read your own articles and the things you've assigned is how much of a perspective you do have, because you've been a political commentator for decades. Is that fair?
1: I covered the William Howard Taft uh, campaign (laughs) first. (laughs) He was very large, (laughs) I remember. So he goes way back. Yeah. And it's helpful
0: at junctures like this to hear someone with your experience of living with the unexpected over and over again, decade by decade, Mm. actually race by race, talk about his expectations for the future. Um, And I didn't prepare you by saying, gee, can you end with some thoughts about the future? Um, But sometimes those are the most uh, relished remarks, treasured remarks, um, we get from someone who's studied the past. To be sure, I have the prejudice of being a historian, I'll admit it. But in addition, you really have watched the foe and fray of American politics for a long time. And you've also studied the prior history um, to a degree that most people rarely you know, devote themselves. So could you spend a few minutes and give yourself time? Uh, we have time. Just talking about what you see as the key trends and your expectations moving forward.
1: I said to a group uh, about a year ago that watching politics today, I feel like a guy who has spent his whole life flying airplanes and get into a mm-hmm. 707 one day on my New York to Miami run, and I take off, and the control tower says, uh, Captain, uh, you need to know that the law of gravity has been uh, suspended.
0: <laughs>
1: and what I mean by that is that everything I thought I understood about the way the political <laughs> process works was, was substantially upended um, by the election of Donald Trump. Because the things that had always been true ceased to be true or were not applicable to this election, Uh, to the point where I went back and looked. I had written my first political piece on the potential strength of Trump in October of 2015. I wrote a bunch of pieces about how weak a candidate Hillary Clinton was, and I still couldn't bring myself to believe, even on election day, that this guy was going to win. In retrospect, I should have called a friend in London and had him go to Ladbrokes and bet, you know, a 1,000 pounds at 100 to 1, against, which was the odds against Trumps. But I wasn't. Because everything I thought, it, it only became clearer, even the things that began to get clear, um, that, that a substantial percent of the public was sufficiently um, fed up that they were prepared to elect somebody because that person was going to upend the table. I don't think it was that these folks thought that Donald Trump was going to bring coal mining jobs back, you know, or pay off the national debt in eight years, you know, or whatever. It's just that on these circumstances, and this I did say early, everything that I thought was a bug was a feature. That is... Uh, he bragged about his money. You don't do that if you're a rich candidate. But what it meant for these he was, right, he can't be bought. He's too rich to steal and he can't be bought. None of those other people are going to be able to, because he's so rich. Um, he used offensive language. And I can't tell you how many pe- pe- reporters heard the same thing I did. He says what I can't say. And sometimes that had very ugly connotations. He says what I can't say about them. But it also meant he says what I can can't say about my boss, about the rich people who, you know, who trot all over me, whatever it is. Um, at one point I, I know I was on Meet the Press right after the these attacks in France, and Chuck Todd said, Well, this is this may really help an experienced candidate. And my answer was accept. If if they believe that experience is what gave them the war in Iraq and the Great Recession, you know, experience that's the other thing. A lot of things that were features were bugs. There was nobody in traditional politics more qualified than Hillary Clinton. But that was part of the problem. She was there. She was one of them that betrayed us. Let us down. So when you ask, what has my experience taught me about possibilities for the future, we've, so, we've, we've turned such a drastic corner that um, I'm not sure how much experience helps. I mean, you know, as we analyze the campaign, I keep thinking of past campaigns and what I know about them. And then I think, yeah, but how is that relevant? How is that relevant? Um, One thing I thought I knew was the, the institutional restraints on a president. That is, Congress is very jealous about its, uh, per, about its constitutional powers. And if a president overstays the, oversteps those powers, even members of Congress of that president's party will rein him in. Well, that hasn't happened with almost no exception. Occasionally, okay, the, you can't put Herman Cain on the Federal Reserve Board. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Maybe you can't put, who's this other the Stephen Moore on the Federal Reserve Board. We'll knock off a few of the district judges that you've nominated because they're ludicrously <laughs> unqualified. But but, So you have a president who says, oh, you won't legislate money for me for a well, I'm going to declare a national emergency and, and get the money. In another era, the entire... Republican Congressional leadership would have said to Trump, no, you can't do that. That's not how the system works. And with a couple of exceptions, they said, you know, Mr. McConnell, you know, McConnell included, said, no, I guess we'll, just it'll be okay. Um, today we learned that the deposed Homeland Security uh, Secretary, said, we really got to do something about Russia's efforts to interfere with the 2020 election. And the chief of staff said, no, don't bring that up. Because for Trump, even the suggestion that the Russians interfered, which is now pretty much universally accepted, he somehow sees that as a lessening of his historic achievement. So we don't want to talk about what could be a threat to the political process. What I'm getting at is all of this taking place has left me thinking that, um, we're just there. Says to use a cliche a, 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 maybe a new normal now you know I don't know what happens if, if, if Trump were to lose re-election um, do we revert <coughs> or have the changes that have happened now become part of the system I just noticed that I think it was Kamala Harris who said if the Congress doesn't act on uh, gun, gun control uh, I will use my executive authority well, you know, if, if you don't like it when the Republican president takes power from the Congress, are you going to like it because a Democratic president does what you would want done? And used to, we, are, we are more in a, in a purely transactional kind of politics than we, than we have been. The institutional restraints on presidents and Congress and courts just seem to me to have been really weakened. I gave the example of, you know, you really want to pack, you want to put five new justices on the Supreme Court so you can get the votes you want? So what do they do when the next time the Republicans, when they put what, six more justices? How big a Supreme Court you going to have? Um, And I I don't know whether, I really had thought from the very beginning that this wouldn't happen that the Republicans would, you know, as, a, as institutionally, they would not permit a guy like Donald Trump to be their nominee. Because among other things, he rejects, you know, he was at one point pro-choice. He was for a wealth tax. He was sort of for socialized medicine. I thought, really thought uh, that there would be a massive movement of Republicans away from him the way they moved away from Goldwater and the way Democrats moved away from a government, and a lot of them did. One-fifth of the Republicans in the Senate refused to endorse Trump. And it made no difference. Trump got, 80, Trump got the, a greater proportion of the Republican vote than Mitt Romney got. I did not think the evangelical community would embrace this guy. He seems to have led a life not entirely in keeping with their notions. <laughs> and then you had the, the non-more the secular people on the, on the right who wrote books when character was king, character above all. And what happened two years before Trump was elected, Mm -hmm. this number I do remember, roughly three-quarters of evangelical voters said a president's personal character is very important. Two years into Trump, the number was down to about 20%. That's why when you ask me what has this Mm -hmm. lifetime immersion in politics taught me about the future, not much.
0: Well, let us all thank Jeff Greenfield for a fascinating. Thank you.